With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the 25th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also really love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help better protect your privacy. Please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. And hey, guess what? Now I'm teaching live some online IAPP certification classes for the Privacy Cert CIPM, CIPT, and CIPM. So send me an email if you want to know more. Or go to ashleytrainingonline.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y trainingonline.com. So my July Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 28th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, you can sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email. Let me know who is your privacy hero. It can be at your work or it can be in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. So today my tips of the week relate to recent news about how the contents of Perhaps perhaps hundreds of thousands of Gmail messages were shared with and actually read by thousands of third parties of Google. Now, many people use the free Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, and other types of free email services. I mean, I use them. I use various free email services for those many free newsletters that I get, and I use the freebie email services to request free reports online and do other non-business types of communications. And I do this so I don't mix them with my business emails. Why should you not use free email services for your business? Well, always remember those emails that are free services, they aren't really free. You're providing your data in exchange for them using the data. Now that data is shared with many others and most using the services don't even know about this. On on, uh, July 3rd, it was widely reported that potentially tens or even hundreds of thousands of real life people working for those third parties had actually personally read the contents of so many messages of those using Gmail. 
One company told the Wall Street Journal that the practice was, quote, common and a dirty secret, unquote. Google indicated that the practice was not against its policies. The Wall Street Journal reported that in their investigation, they spoke to just a few of the many third-party companies with access to the Gmail accounts and that their employees had indicated that they had read, quote, thousands of email messages. The companies said that they had not asked users for explicit or specific permission to read the contents of their Gmail messages because the practice was covered by their user agreements. So here's my tips for today. Number one, do not use those free email service providers, Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, and so many others, to send any type of messages or attachments that you do not want others to read. Number two, definitely do not use the free email services for business or healthcare communications. And number three, do not use the free email services as your business email solution. Use an email service that provides security and privacy options. You know, all businesses must use these for communications with clients, consumers, patients, contractors, and really any others that you're doing business communications with. So today is the second of a series of topics that I'm doing on encryption. Uh, A topic I think is so important and we need to really talk more about. Now, I spoke with Dr. Larry Poneman on July 3rd about his research into encryption trends around the world. Today, I'm addressing the reoccurring efforts by the U.S. government and law enforcement to compel tech providers to put some types of backdoors into encryption technologies to allow them access to the data if they think they need it. This is also being pursued in many other countries as well. And you know what? This is not a new topic In the U.S., it has been pushed by government agencies and law enforcement since at least the late 1980s. So here's some examples. In February of 1995, the FBI published a report to Congress that was titled Law Enforcement's Diminished Capability to Conduct Electronic Surveillance. And within it, they pushed to have access to encrypted data. In 1998, the FBI director told a Senate committee that, quote, non-recovery encryption will devastate our ability to fight crime and terrorism, end quote. He made these statements following the downing of TWA Flight 800, which was ultimately determined to be caused by a mechanical failure and not a terrorist act, contrary to what the FBI director claimed at the time. So access to encrypted data would not have helped that case at all. Now, similar statements, <clears throat> excuse me, have been made through the 2000s and the 2010s. Earlier this year, 2018, the FBI released statistics and those statistics stated that encryption blocked law enforcement from retrieving evidence from 7,775 devices during the 2017 fiscal year. However, 
it was then revealed shortly after that report was released that that number that they said was really much higher than what was more accurately 1,000, possibly up to 2,000 cases. But of course, even if it was 2,000, it's still a significant number, right? And we all want terrorists and criminals to be caught. But was getting access to encrypted data files actually the only keys to solving these cases? Or were other methods available to get intelligence information beyond just the encrypted data? Or were there other methods available to obtain access to encrypted data instead of putting back doors in the technology? You know, all important considerations. Also, how many of the encryption technologies came from other countries, not the U.S.? So, what are some important issues that should be considered for putting some types of back doors into encryption technologies? Well, I have the perfect person to discuss this with us today. Today, my guest is Dr. Eugene Spafford professor with an appointment in computer science at Purdue University, where he has served on the faculty since 1987. Dr. Spafford is also a professor of philosophy, professor of communication, professor of electrical and computer engineering, and a professor of political science. Dr. Spafford serves on a number of of advisory and editorial boards. Dr. Spafford's current research interests are primarily in the areas of information security, computer crime investigation, and information ethics. Dr. Spafford is recognized as truly one of the senior leaders in the field of computing and of information security. Dr. Spafford is executive director of the Purdue Sirius program and was the founder and director of the Coast Laboratory. Gene, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to talk to you again, Rebecca. Yeah, well, it's always so uh, great speaking with you, and I always learn so much. And before we dive into this backdoor issue, uh, backdoor into encryption issue, you know, our listeners come from all over the world. And so I want to level set understanding to our listening audience, some of whom are just learning about encryption and others who may have been working with encryption their entire career. So can you provide for our listeners you know, a high-level overview of generally what encryption is and the current types of encryption that most are most commonly used? Sure. Uh, you can think of encryption as a series of transformations um, similar in a sense to kind of a lock, where you have a key, which uh, you can think of as a password, that is used to operate the encryption, and transform any data, whether it's a short message or a whole disk, into a scrambled set of bits that no one else can read unless they have the same key. And there are primarily two kinds of encryption that are widely used. There's one kind called symmetric key, and what happens there is that anyone with the key can read the output, can read the message, and anyone with a key can encrypt the message. 
The second kind of encryption that's widely used is something called public key or asymmetric. And there we have two different keys. One key will lock up the message, transform it, and, so that it can't be read by anyone else. Mm-hmm. And the second key can decrypt the message, but the, the key that encrypts it can't be used to read the message. It can only be used to send it. Mm. And so uh, that provides some other interesting capabilities. So you can create uh, mailboxes that everyone can send you messages because they know the key to encrypt, to scramble the message, but only you can read it because only you have that second key. And it can also be used to create uh, what we call digital signatures to prove that you were the one who sent a message uh, by effectively reversing the, pro- the, uh, the uh, process with the keys. So what type are businesses generally using? I mean, I know when you're talking about how you can uh, use a key to encrypt it, but then can't get to the data once it's been encrypted. It seems like a lot of businesses now are using those types of services where they send, let's say, their customers encrypted messages and they have a link out to a website where they say, retrieve your information and read it here, uh, the email that they have. Um, It seems like that's growing in popularity. Yes, and businesses are actually using both kinds of encryption. Mm -hmm. The symmetric encryption is where you share the key with a small number of people and you trust them to hold the key. So you have to set that up ahead of time and you have to know that you're going to be talking to them. Mm-hmm. The public-private key encryption, the, the second kind that I talked about, um, enjoys also widespread use for a number of reasons in that you don't have to set up that key ahead of time. And it's also, as I said, used for something called digital signatures, which are accepted in the law for contracts and, and proving that you receive messages. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a hybrid is used. So the businesses will create a symmetric key that first kind of encryption, uh, just for the message that they're sending or just for the website or the, or the disk files that they're using. Mm-hmm. And then they'll send that to a trading partner, a customer, a vendor, encrypted with public key of who they're sending it to. So whoever gets that message will decrypt it with their private key, find that symmetric key, and then use it that one time mm-hmm. to be able to read the contents. So, you know, from what you're describing, encryption is not just a a one type of technology or one solution type of technology. A lot of times it seems like when you hear this discussed by lawmakers uh, and so on, they make it sound like all encryption is created equal. But um, I think it's important to point out that there's many types like you just described. And also, all encryption is not the same strength, right? There's many different types of, intri- of encryption strengths that are also being used out there. That's right. There, there are different kinds of algorithms that are involved. Um, some are trivial to break, even for uh, some of my advanced students, mm-hmm. uh, given enough information. Others are very, very complex, and we have uh, no known ways of breaking them Uh, no matter how powerful a computer system we put against them. It's also the case, it's very much like passwords, that the key length 
determines something about how strong the encryption is. So if you were to use a four-character password or a four-character key, that's fairly trivial to break by guessing. But if you were to use a 32-character password or key, um, it just wouldn't be possible using today's resources. Right, right. So, so encryption as a technology is not just one thing. It's very complex. There's very many different solutions. In general, what are your views on encryption? I know you've been working uh, with encryption in many different ways throughout the years. Is it good to use for all types of data, only certain types of data? Do you think it's a threat to national security like we hear so many say sometimes in testimony to Congress? I don't believe it's anywhere near the threat that mm-hmm. the testimony has portrayed it as, uh, but it is something that has different kinds of uses and implications. Mm-hmm. So national governments use encryption to protect their secrets from each other, to communicate political and military uh, information back and forth to each other. And it's very important that that works to protect mm-hmm. the country's interests. Businesses use it. Banks use it on a regular basis. You and I use it on a regular basis when we visit websites where we do uh, online purchases or connecting with our bank. And there it's mostly transparent. We don't even see it happen. Uh, it used to be there might be a little lock appear on the, uh, the browser window to indicate that. But that's encrypted. And that's so that somebody doesn't steal our credit card information or our bank information. So it is... It is really built into everyday communications uh, everywhere, and it's growing in use with people sending sensitive information over cell phones and computer links, storing it in the cloud, um, trading internationally. Uh, All of these things are really important to protect, and encryption is not the only way to protect it, but it's an important component. Now, similarly, criminals and and people who would wish to do harm uh, can use those same mechanisms to protect their communications. Mm -hmm. It's it's somewhat inescapable that if we provide a mechanism that will help, someone will find a way to use it for bad reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think automobiles are a wonderful example. We use them to travel to work, we travel on vacation, we go to the store, Versions of cars are used as ambulances and police cars, uh, news teams going to the scenes of an accident. But we also have criminals using cars to escape after robbing banks or even to steal cars. It's not the technology that's the problem uh, really so much as the fact that there are people who are misusing it. I love that analogy because I think a lot of times people don't realize all of the uh, benefits of encryption, and and actually, if it was used more by businesses, we wouldn't have these huge breaches, uh, as many huge breaches as we do now. Now, I want to go to uh, some testimony, and I know that you follow pretty closely testimony to Congress when they're talking about um, different types of security technologies. In 2015 testimony, and it's been similar in other at other times, too, the FBI stated, uh, quote, we would like to emphasize that the going dark encryption problem is, at base, one of tech- 
technological choices and capability. We are not asking to expand the government surveillance authority, but at but rather we're asking to ensure that we can continue to obtain electronic information and evidence pursuant to the legal authority that Congress has provided to keep America safe. So, you know, when I hear these statements, it's almost vilifying encryption. It's like we're trying, you know, it's like it's only used uh, by criminals or terrorists to hide data and it's uh, it seems like when they're calling it a problem that gives the wrong the wrong outlook about this important technology tool to the general public. Uh, what's your overarching view of you know this type of statement, and also with regard to how, according to many in law enforcement and the government, how they're saying it's preventing them from getting access to the information they need for investigations? Well, there's a that's a complex issue, and I'll try mm-hmm. and unpack it a, a, a little bit. Uh, first of all, we have to keep in mind that the mission of the FBI is to investigate crime mm-hmm. and to identify evidence that can be used to prosecute criminals. They don't have the bigger mission of thinking about how to protect commerce, how to protect privacy, uh, how to how to protect public interest in the same way uh, that some of the rest of us do when we're looking at the bigger issues. They're really focused on the criminal aspects of investigation. So when they make a statement like that, they're really stating something related to their mission, not to the really bigger context of how any technology might be used by the general public. So uh, their statement, as far as it goes, is correct. Saying that it is at its base a technological issue is, I think, uh, disingenuous because there are policy decisions that have to be made about where technology is used and the value of privacy mm-hmm. uh, in public life. Um, we, we have trade-offs there that we would have to think about for public good versus um, maybe not being able to fully investigate some cases. Now, in my discussion with law enforcement personnel and my own research, the number of cases that they have been unsuccessful in investigating sufficiently to to be able to prosecute or discover what happened is really very tiny compared to overall what they do. Mm -hmm. Most criminals leave evidence in multiple places of multiple different kinds. It's not solely uh, uh, encrypted in some device somewhere. Uh, they're able to collect that other evidence using lawful means. And third, there, uh, there's an aspect of um, being able to surveil and look at information. If they use that prior to a crime occurring, then they're likely to sweep up information from a lot of law-abiding citizens otherwise. Um, I think the going dark problem that they're talking about um, they, they've begun to move their focus from simply investigating crimes to trying to prevent them. And as a result, they sweep up an awful lot of information that we ought to have a discussion about whether they should be doing that. Oh, I think those are excellent points. And, you know, something else always bothers me when they talk about um, how 
the tech companies in the U.S. are preventing them from doing their jobs and investigations like you're talking about. The fact that there's many other uh, ways that they can collect evidence, but also there's a lot of other countries out there that provide encryption technologies. It's not just the U.S. So if I wanted to hide something and I knew that the U.S. had back doors, what would stop me from going and getting strong technology from other countries? Well, that works two ways. It's it's not only a matter of getting the technology from other countries or other people. Again, my grad students um, would know how to write a program that would have unbreakable mm. encryption, and they could they could easily turn that into a product or share that with others. But if we turn that around, if tech companies are forced to include mechanisms uh, where there is, and we use the term a golden key. Um, which is intended to be, uh, you know, just kind of a, a metaphor uh, mm-hmm. that that if there's some way that that the FBI could access any message when they wanted to, those tech companies don't market only in the U.S. They market in um, Europe, in Africa, in Russia, in China, in Australia, and the governments and police in those countries would also demand access to the keys. Mm-hmm. But once they have those keys, there's no guarantee that they would only use it to look at their criminal cases. Uh, they would use that information perhaps to um, begin to eavesdrop on other kinds of conversations, uh, both within their country against, for instance, political dissidents in, in China or Tibet, Um, as well as communications of competitors in other countries. So there's some real concerns here that, again, the FBI does not consider those Mm -hmm. kinds of issues. Their focus is on investigating U.S. crime, and these are much bigger policy issues that need to be considered. You know, it's we're up on a break time right now, but I want to continue this uh, after we get back um, from the break. So thank you, Jean, very much. It's time for a, a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. We're speaking today about encryption with Dr. Jean Spafford, Executive Director of the Purdue Sirius program. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Simbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Gene Spafford about encryption. So let's continue our discussion. So before the break, we were talking about how uh, different government agencies and so on were asking for ways to get access to data, but... Um, really that they need to think about a wider range of, of uses for encryption and also to address the policy issues that are related, not just the technology issues. So, Gene, do you think it's worth weakening the security of encryption by building in ways to allow government agencies and law enforcement to access encrypted data for that chance that the data is absolutely necessary for some investigation, or do you think there's other ways to address that? Uh, I think in general, with the evidence that we have so far, there is insufficient reason to weaken encryption in consumer products. Uh, Putting such kind of a weakness in means that it's there forever. And Mm -hmm. If, if it can be exploited by someone else, if it has a flaw in it, uh, then that allows others to potentially to have access to that information that's been protected. Um, and if they have somehow saved old communications, they may be able to go back and read the old communications. So that is uh, a systematic and large-scale uh, invasion of privacy and mm-hmm. potentially financial danger um, as a result of building that in. Uh, I, I, I simply don't see that, that that kind of risk, that kind of risk as well for foreign governments to get it or criminal syndicates to get it, um, is, is counterbalanced by potentially um, a few hundred cases where they have difficulty getting some of the evidence. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense to me as a, as a, as a kind of a trade-off. 
Right. And you know what what worries me, too, is the fact that the government's huge. I mean, we're talking about potentially giving access to how many hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. We don't know who within the government would have the capability to access the golden key, as you put it earlier. Uh, We already know from past Um, examples within the government that there have been folks who had top secret access to data that then use that access for, you know, things that was not appropriate. So like you said, that it seems like the insider threat would be something that needs to be considered too and also some sort of uh, procedures put into place if they really wanted to pursue that. But uh, where else would the threats and vulnerabilities for these risks come from besides the insiders? You talked about the criminals, the fact that we have data that's still out there. I mean, what, what do our lawmakers need to consider when they're truly thinking about forcing or compelling tech companies to uh, put these types of accesses into what should be strong security technologies? Well, there, there are um, issues with penetration of the technology itself. So mm-hmm. encryption as currently uh, a science we know that there are some very, very strong encryption methods, but we're not entirely positive that there isn't some weakness that later on could be exploited to break them. And this is an area of active research by not only academics, but agencies inside major governments regularly work on this to try to penetrate other countries' communications. If someone succeeded at this, they wouldn't publicize it. We wouldn't know about it. Mm -hmm. That's a danger. A danger is at the companies where they manufacture these items. Someone on the inside as a matter of uh, perhaps financial gain or for purpose of ideology might weaken or publish the information at a later date if they had access to it simply as a statement or to make money. where do we store the keys or the mechanism that would allow access? If we store it in a database anywhere, we have seen repeated penetrations and leaks, even of high security government databases mm-hmm. um, due to carelessness. And, and think about, we have uh, something like 58 federal law enforcement agencies. We have tens of thousands across the United States how do we handle uh, keys and, and information getting into the hands of all of those people, some of whom, uh, as you noted, may be insiders who have other agendas. So all of that is, is a consideration. Then there's also a technological consideration and a financial one. If we were to take any company and force them to do this for the U.S. market, uh, they would be at a disadvantage then in the world market where companies in other countries would not be bound by the same restrictions. Mm-hmm. So a U.S. branded product would cease to be attractive in those other countries because they know that the U.S. government might be able to listen in on their communications. So they would go to competitors, and that would be a grave disservice to the companies that have built up, uh, particularly within the U.S. market, many of which are U.S. owned, 
uh, pitting them in a, in a terrible position with uh, the world market. Well, and I can testify to that. As you know, with my Symbus business, that is a cloud-based uh, service. And I actually have lost business from Asia. There were some pretty good-sized um pretty good size deals going on there and when they keep hearing about our government wanting to get access they said you know until we know that that's not going to happen we're sorry but you have a good uh, product there but we just can't do it right now so I, I can I'm a have personally been affected by that too so I think it, it is a serious business issue that's impacting so many more organizations throughout the U.S. than probably a lot of people realize. And and it's not a new issue. I'm surprised that so many now have completely no knowledge of the government push in the 1990s for the clipper chip to use, you know, government accessible encryption within the USA. And that used to be in the headlines all the time throughout the 1990s. So can you provide our listeners with an overview of the the Clipper Chip initiative and maybe how it's kind of related to what's being pushed uh, today? In uh, up until really uh, the, the late 90s, encryption was considered to be a restricted munition in the same category as atomic weapons. And so companies trying to use encryption and build them into products would find that they couldn't export legally uh, their products to other countries. And in the early days of Internet communications, uh, early web commerce and the like, this was a grave concern that we couldn't compete Mm -hmm. in the international marketplace with this. And furthermore... We couldn't protect commerce uh, against criminal elements who were well-funded or, or sophisticated. So the U.S. government attempted to come up with a kind of compromise, particularly for um, cell phones of the era or even desk phones when people still had wired phones, mm-hmm. by developing a secret algorithm for encryption that had... Uh, a special key called an escrow key that the government would hold and the theory was that under order of a court with a warrant they could use that key to gain access to the communications of one of these phones. They even went so far as to build a special uh, chip that could be embedded in these phones. They had a, a couple of companies manufacturing these. It was called a clipper chip uh, with a skipjack algorithm on it was the name of the encryption algorithm. Mm -hmm. And they were going to mandate this for any encrypted phone. Uh, But it turned out that even though this had been designed by some of the best scientists in the government, within a matter of months, it was found to be flawed by some researchers outside in academia. And it was shown that you could encrypt using other algorithms as well as what they used and Mm -hmm. still hide the communications. And so after a very expensive and politically charged battle, they gave it up because it simply wouldn't work. Well, and, you know, talking about using other encryption, even if uh, 
if you're using the encryption with the golden key, that the clipper chip, I guess, was like the golden key back uh, during the 90s. I could see, I know people that do that today. I know organizations that encrypt three times their different types of data that they are sending to various places. So, you know, they use a VPN, they use a, a type of encryption on the data itself that's traveling through the VPN, and then they wrap the really sensitive data around or within another encrypted uh, packet. So, it seems like it's just uh, an initiative that can be defeated so easily if it was required and it would only hurt the businesses and wouldn't really lead to a lot of, um, you know, benefits if, uh, if investigations were pursued that had encrypted data. Yes, and what happened at the time is that we heard many pronouncements, again, from the FBI and law enforcement uh, and others that if we didn't do that, we would be overrun with child pornographers and drug dealers that we wouldn't be able to apprehend or prosecute because everything they do is encrypted, and that encryption from the U.S. would flow out to other countries and our intelligence community would be unable to operate any longer. Um, They also claimed that they had evidence that this was occurring, but it was classified and they couldn't share it. So a panel was put together uh, under the auspices of the National Academies. They did a study. They were actually cleared for confidential uh, and classified information and came out with a report that said there was actually no evidence that anything like that had happened and that the value of having good encryption would be better than none at all. So the rules were changed in, I believe it was 98, Uh, or 2000 by uh, uh, President Clinton at the time and his administration. Mm -hmm. And in the nearly 20 years since then, uh, the intelligence community has not got a problem with carrying out their missions as a result of encryption any more than they had before. We are not overrun with drug dealers or child pornographers. Um, And yet we're still hearing the same kinds of uh, warnings. Now only they've substituted uh, terrorists in place of the uh, uh, drug dealers. So it's just a, it's kind of a new bogeyman instead of, um, instead of actually pointing to real problems. Yeah, it's kind of like a PR move, isn't it? To spin uh, an initiative in a slightly different way to gain a little bit more support from those who are more sensitive to the term terrorist than drug dealers. Um, For our listeners, I guess I might mention that 1996 report, I believe that's uh, the title of that is Cryptography's Role in Securing the Information Society. Just in case any of our listeners want to look that up, I encourage you uh, to go out and look at it because a lot of the data, a lot of the information in there is still applicable. So um, under, uh, under Clinton, and you said that that was abandoned around 1998, was that in large part because of the information within that report? I think it was an analysis based on that report, uh, a separate study that was done internally about the economic impact of encryption, uh, and um, listening to the public talking about the importance of protecting civil liberties. 
Mm. So much of politics is really about balance. And this is an issue between balance of individual liberty, uh, individual access to privacy, uh, and making the job of law enforcement easier for a very small number of cases. And I would say that for most people, we would say that the, the, the privacy rights of hundreds of millions of people uh, probably outweigh making it easier for the FBI in, in a few hundred cases. Yeah, and I would think, too, that some of the very long-standing types of strategies, like actually embedding some of your own investigators within known uh, terrorist rings or groups and having them on the inside, it seems like that's been a long-time very um, useful tool. It seems like that can still be used and actually have that infiltration within those groups um, to be able to identify some of these different activities as well. Yes, um, yes. And big data, being able to look at purchase records, travel records. Um, if they have suspicions, they can get court orders to install listening devices. So there are a lot of other tools that are available to them that may involve a little more expense or time. Uh, certainly some of the cases that have been notorious over the last few years where they claim they could not gain access to data on uh, iPhones in particular, it turns out that they spent money uh, and bought some tools from commercial entities that gave them access to that data. It cost them money, and it took some time, but they were able to access it. Right, right. And I think that's important for everyone to remember, too. And like you mentioned, um, the folks who are talking with their lawmakers about this, too, that's so important. I mean, what you mentioned earlier, I think, highlights the need to not only the general public, if they feel uh, passionate about a topic that's being discussed like this to get in touch and write letters and call their members of Congress and so on, but also uh, different groups get involved too. Uh, Before I get to my next question, I do want to mention to the listeners that I believe this report was updated or maybe a new report came out uh, that talks about encryption. It came out in February of this year, 2018, and it's called Decrypting the Encryption Debate, a Framework for Decision Makers. And I haven't had a chance to read that really thoroughly yet, but I do encourage my listeners to go out and uh, look at that report because from what I've seen, it's got some really good ideas within it. So, When it comes to these reports, and I know you are involved in a lot of groups that provide reports to different lawmakers and um, intelligence agencies, do they really read those reports? I hear a lot of people say, well, there's so much time spent and effort spent in putting together these reports that go to Congress and so on, but do they really read them? Do they pay attention to them? Um. The, the truth for a lot of these reports is that the elected representatives don't read them, by and large. Few read them, uh, few have the time, uh, mm-hmm. or even necessarily the background. However, they have very talented staff who do have sometimes very deep expertise in these areas. They read the reports carefully. They do talk to experts in the area, and they summarize it and make recommendations to the members uh, about what those reports say. And so they do have great value. They are referred to by people 
who help make the decisions that drive government. And it also establishes a good document for reference, like we can still reference that 1996 document. It's there. We see that it was actually discussed back then and that so many of the concepts are the same. So kind of for historical value and a documentation that, yes, this information does exist and was discussed, I think that's an important point, too, just to ensure that people know that it is something that has been addressed before. Um, yes, I would say that's that's very important is that we don't forget the past and the work that's been done. Um, I have not completely gone through the new report, but I think one one thing that I have gotten out of that from discussion with people who have read it is that that report doesn't say that it's not possible to do um, some kind of, of special key or backdoor into the algorithms, but nothing to date has been shown to have the properties that are desired of such an algorithm or or mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. And mandating anything before we have something that's been thoroughly studied and we understand the consequences can lead to many bad things. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, as and I've thought about this uh, quite a lot too, thinking how could you actually create something that would be limited, that would be like a golden key. And I guess I keep coming back to biometrics and maybe having one or two designated, you know, human flesh golden keys that would have to be involved. But then I think about the the different types of risks that would create too. Um, but it would become so... I don't know, overwhelming to try to find back doors. It seems like doing what we've been discussing with all these other avenues and pathways to get information would be much more productive in the long run. I think so. And again, there are many things we don't understand about some of the technology and the future. So Mm -hmm. uh, just as one example, uh, there's now increased federal emphasis on the notion of what's called quantum computing. And uh, I won't go into detail about what quantum computing is. That would take at least another hour. Uh, But it's a new form of specialized computing that's based on uh, some of the uncertain behavior of subatomic or atomic level particles. And it would allow breaking many of the current encryption algorithms we have much, much faster than anything that... um, has ever been known before, uh, that's a game changer if that were to happen. If we had a mechanism in place where quantum computing could could break it, um, then then that would endanger everybody who was forced to use that algorithm. Mm. Very good point. And I think it's also for those listening who are considering the strength of algorithms, it's always, the strength is always relative to the time period in which it was, the strength was determined, right? Because the strength of encryption in the 1990s and saying, oh, it would take a million years to break this. Well, that was relative to the 1990s. It's certainly not, you know, applicable to today, I wouldn't think. Not even close. (laughs) So that's something for everyone listening to think about as well. Um, We have about four minutes left in the in the show. And before we go, I mean, you've provided such great food for thought for everyone listening in today. Um, 
is there anything that you want an important point that you want to make to our listeners about encryption that you want to leave them with or any two or three things you want to advise our listeners to do when it comes to uh, using encryption? Well, I'd like to make one overarching statement, which is um, we've pointed out that many in government and law enforcement have been pushing for this. I want to make clear, I don't think the majority of those people uh, or any of them have evil intent. Uh, law enforcement has a hard job and big threats, and they're concerned about it, and and that's what their focus is. Um, so I, I don't I don't think we should vilify them for this, um, but it's also not their job to think about the broader policy concerns or the overall policy concerns for people. Uh, encryption is a way not only of ensuring privacy but of protecting your data against people who shouldn't see it. Uh, that's why it's used in all our internet connections for e-commerce. Banks use it. Credit card companies use it. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of it. It's something that where we can use it, we should embrace it. Uh, the, the, one of the bigger problems is managing the keys, that is those passwords for the encryption. We shouldn't use the same one everywhere, and we have to keep track of them in a safe manner. Um, that is an interesting a technical issue and a human factors issue in computing. Um, like any other tool that we have available to us, we have to think about how it's used responsibly and we have to think in international terms. And that makes this more difficult mm-hmm. is because when we're talking about data and we're talking about the internet, it crosses national borders. Commerce goes across national borders and communication. Uh, So we have to think in a broader context of how decisions we make affect or are affected by that larger sphere. And that's what makes this both challenging um, and potentially a a very valuable contribution. Thank you. I think that's an excellent uh, way to put um, and summarize what we've been talking about today. So thank you so much, Gene, for being on the show today. I sure appreciate it. My pleasure. Today I've been chatting with Dr. Gene Spafford, Executive Director Emeritus of the Purdue Sirius Program, about encryption and the impacts of putting backdoor access into encryption technologies and also the related issues. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you'll be able to listen to the recordings. You can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, TuneIn, Overcast, Listen Notes, and so many others, in addition to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Also, contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance uh, work and keynotes. I've been an expert witness for a few times. I love doing those, so let me know about that, too. And also visit my Symbus360.com security and privacy cloud services. You can contact me with questions, too. Just use Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, when you go to your job and do your daily work, or can encounter anything else involving personal information and how it's secured. Until our next show, ask those who you do business with and who you work for if they're doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. 
Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Thank you.